0: The lesson this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 1. We are uh, in kind of an in-between season right now. We're not in any sort of ongoing sermon series. We're just preaching from the lectionary, which is the calendar of readings that's used by Christians all over the world. So when you hear the gospel lesson this morning from John 1, you can know that uh, all over the country, people are hearing this same gospel today. All over the world, people are hearing this same lesson and this encounter from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. As we go through the Christian year, we're in that part of the year where we learn about how everything got started in Jesus' preaching ministry, and we're going to pick it up uh, just after uh, Christ's baptism uh, as John tells the story in chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see even greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of God. It's for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken with me, be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. A family friend of ours uh, named Frank shared a story with us a few years back, and it's such a powerful story. I wanted to open by sharing it with you. Uh, He wrote it as an email that he sent to several of us in the family. He said, as a bagpiper, I, I play a lot of gigs, you probably know. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man who had no family or friends, So the service was to be at a pauper cemetery in the North Alabama back country. I didn't know those back roads, and I got lost. And typically for me, I didn't stop for directions. So I arrived an hour late, and I saw the funeral guy had gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only the diggers, and the crew left, and they were eating lunch. And I felt so badly, I apologized for being late, and I went to the side of the grave. I looked down, and the vault lid was already in place, and I didn't know what to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather round. And I played out my heart and soul for this man with no family or friends. I played like I had never played before for this homeless man. And as I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept and I wept and we all wept together. And when I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. And my heart was full, though my head hung low. As I opened the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I'll declare, I had never seen nothing like that before. I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> I suspect that our friend Frank might have made that story up before he sent us to us. For one thing, I don't think he plays the bagpipes. And I'm sure some other friends have received it as an email forward. But there is one part of the story that does ring true. Every one of us has been in some situation that would have gone a lot better if someone had stopped and asked, Why are you here? And I want to give you a little bit of background on the story that we hear today because it is an important question. Why are we here? It's a question that's especially relevant when we think about evangelism and about God calling the first disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's particularly important for us to think about this question. Why are you here when we think about how Jesus did evangelism? Now, I expect that some of you do not often think of Jesus as an evangelist. You might think of him as the one that evangelists talk about. You might think that he is somebody who, if he was an evangelist, evangelism was easy for him. He was Jesus. What could be difficult about that? But when we look at the Bible, we see Jesus is not simply the king and the savior, but Jesus is also the spokesperson for the kingdom. Jesus came to share it and to tell others. Jesus is not content to say, well, I know who I am and I know what I believe, and to go on about his business. Jesus believes that who he is and what the kingdom is and what he has come to do and share is so important that he cannot help but share it with people, to share the kingdom. And it's a very important distinction we need to have right from the beginning that Jesus is sharing, not selling. Because we are much more accustomed to living in a world where all news that we get about any sort of kingdom, whether we get it from Google or Facebook or from the cable news, all the news that we get comes with an ad attached. Sometimes these ads are promising that they're going to sell us exactly the thing we've been looking for, and sometimes the ads are telling us that they're going to give us the thing we never knew that we needed, but now we know because somebody was kind enough to try and sell it to us. Earlier this week, the first ad I saw in the morning was an ad in my Facebook feed somebody put there that was There to convince me I was going to die a very painful and lonely death. I was going to trip and fall and be left alone forever if I didn't install some outlet covers that had a built in nightlight. We are very accustomed to getting our news of the world and of the kingdoms around us with an ad attached. Jesus' evangelism isn't like that, it doesn't begin with selling. And you may have been turned off by those who seem to always be selling the kingdom of God. Jesus does not begin with selling. He begins with asking. And in the passage just before what we read today, Jesus is going around and calling his disciples. And the first one that he comes to is a guy named Andrew. And Andrew, we are told, has been a disciple of John the Baptist for a while. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, what are you looking for? And he says, where are you staying? And Jesus responds by saying... What are you looking for? And when they answer, his invitation to them is, not something, is something less than a hard sell. Jesus doesn't promise to answer all the questions. He does not promise to be everything that they were looking for. He doesn't tell them what they ought to really be looking for, that they're looking for the wrong thing. Jesus just simply says to Andrew and to some other disciple who's unnamed in the gospel of John, come and see. And then we're told, a little bit later, that Andrew went and found his brother, Peter. And somewhere along the line, Jesus saw Philip. And when he invited Philip, Philip went and found his friend, Nathaniel, as we heard today. Every moment that added to the kingdom, that brought new people into following Jesus, came not by the hard sell, but by an invitation. It began when Jesus said to Andrew, Come and see. It began when Jesus asked him, what are you looking for? Because it turns out everybody is looking for something, just like Annie Lennox. Every once in a while, I try and work in a, the narrowest possible reference I can, one that'll hit the narrowest age group. So if you're born between 73 and 82, congratulations, you, you know that reference. Everybody's looking for something, like Annie Lennox. But it turns out we're not all looking for the same thing. All these people who followed Jesus, they were looking for something different. Andrew was looking for a movement. He was already following somebody. He was following John the Baptist because he wanted to be a part of something bigger than himself. He wanted to be a part of something exciting. And he was looking to be on the cutting edge of whatever the new thing was, Peter, we are told, was not with Andrew. We don't know where he was, but the other gospels lead us to believe that Peter was probably at the family business. Because Peter also wanted to be a part of the kingdom, but he was not like Andrew. He didn't want to be on the cutting edge. Peter wanted something solid, Peter wanted something secure. He wanted somebody to vouch for this Jesus guy. And it's not for nothing. So when Peter shows up at Jesus' feet, Jesus says, I will make you the rock on which I build my kingdom. Jesus knows that Peter is looking for something solid, something secure. And then in the passage that we read today, we meet Nathaniel Nathanael's looking for something different from Andrew who wanted to be on the cutting edge and Peter who wanted something secure. Nathanael is the skeptic. Nathaniel is looking for the reason not to get excited. Nathaniel is looking for the reason not to get involved. Nathaniel is looking for the flaw in the whole thing. Nathaniel is looking for the thing that no one else has recognized. And I don't know about you, but I have known some Nathaniels in my life. If I'm very honest, I have been Nathaniel more than a couple times in my life. I've gone looking for the reason not to have to change. I've gone looking for the reason to doubt, to point out the flaw in someone's argument. As often as I have asked the Holy Spirit to come into my heart, I have asked the Holy Spirit to leave a little room for the Nathaniel spirit within me. It feels safe to be a Nathaniel. Because Nathanael never loses an argument. If it looks like he's about to, he just changes the terms of the debate. Philip tells him, we have found the one for whom we are waiting for, Jesus of Nazareth. And Philip's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Thank God Nathanael has a friend like Philip who knows exactly what to do with Nathanael's skepticism. Because... Philip doesn't try to argue with Nathanael. He doesn't put the hard sell on him. Nathanael comes to Philip with his skepticism, and Philip handles Nathanael the exact same way that Jesus handled Andrew. Philip says to Nathanael, Come and see. And then notice what happens when Nathanael does. Jesus looks at Nathanael and he says, look, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no hype, no overselling. Jesus knows that Nathanael wants honesty. Jesus wants what every skeptic wants, wants something that doesn't have any flaw he can find. He doesn't want hype. He wants something that is so true he has no choice but to believe it. Nathaniel is looking for someone who can appreciate the value of simply speaking the truth with no deceit. And Jesus, just as he told Peter, you are the rock, tells Nathaniel, you are the one in whom there is no deceit. I think there are a vast number of people in the world who suffer simply because we are unwilling to ask them, hey, what are you looking for? Sometimes we don't ask them because our neighbors seem so very confident. They go around playing their bagpipes at full volume for all that they are worth. They draw, make all kinds of noise and they draw all kinds of attention. And we look at them and we think that person has it figured out. They're not looking for anything. They seem so confident, so strong. They are so competent and impressive. They got so much beauty to share with the world but they're playing their songs for a septic tank because no one has bothered to ask them, hey, what are you really looking for? And then sometimes we're afraid to ask somebody, what are you looking for? Because we're afraid we won't have the answer. They might be looking for something we can't give them. We're afraid that they're gonna ask a question that is beyond our wisdom. We're afraid we'll get stumped. We're afraid that their skepticism will just win out Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, once somebody asks that question in the conversation, you know you are not going to win the argument. You know that every time you get close, they're just going to change the topic. And so why even bother? We're also afraid someone might go all philosophical and start talking above our head. One time, Jesus was standing in front of Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? And if you've ever been in that conversation, you know you're never gonna give an answer that will satisfy the questioner. And so we don't even bother asking people, what are you looking for? But even if we may not have the answer, even if we can't give people what they are looking for, even if it seems like they've got all the answers already, so why should we trouble ourselves? There's an incredible value in simply asking someone, what are you looking for? You don't have to know the answer. I mean, imagine what would have happened if that bagpiper had gone up to that hill and just one of the diggers had said, by the way, sir, what are you looking for? And he would have said, I'm looking for a pauper's funeral. And the diggers would have said, oh, well, we can't help you there, but we can tell you where you are. You're at a septic tank. And if they had just asked, What are you looking for? And if he had come to know where he was, he might have changed what he did next. The invitation that Jesus gives us is never a sales pitch. And it's not an argument. It is simply the invitation to share something. It's an invitation that is open to everyone who is looking for something. And it is open because we as the church ought to be a people who are looking for something as well. Andrew was looking for a movement. Peter was looking for security. Nathaniel was looking for something that was true and better than the hype with no deceit or exaggeration. And here's the miraculous thing. All these people were looking for something different, but they all brought each other to Jesus. And you can't give everyone what they are looking for. You don't have all the answers for their questions, but you can share your own search with others who are looking for something to believe in. If you're gonna ask someone, why are you here? Then you can do them the courtesy of letting them ask you the same. And maybe you'll both find your way to something better. In fact, I wanna take a moment to talk directly to those of you who have been at church for a very long time. I wanna talk to those who've been doing this so very long that you might not have any longer a ready answer to the question, why are you here? Pastor Adam Hamilton says that no church can hope to reach new people for the gospel until every member in it can answer three questions. Why Jesus? Why the church? And why this congregation? We don't all have to have the same answers to those questions. Yours can be very different than mine. But we have to let people ask us that question. Why are you here? And every one of us needs to have an answer if we want people to come and to see Jesus through Dolphin Way. So that's what I'm going to ask of you today. Uh, Tonight, before you go to bed, I'm going to ask you to take 15 minutes. I'm asking you right now. I'm not going to ask you. I'm asking you now. Before you go to bed, take 15 minutes. If you have a journal, scrap sheet of paper, maybe you just want to type it into a document, I don't care. Take a moment to answer those three questions Why Jesus? Why the church? And why this congregation? If you don't journal, you don't write things down, if that's not your thing, then maybe you want to have it as a family conversation over lunch today. Why Jesus? Why this church? Or why the church? And why this congregation of the church at Dauphin Way? If you don't have anybody you want to talk about it with over lunch, if you don't uh, want to write it down in a journal, then uh, send me an email. Do you know how delighted I would be if tomorrow I woke up and my email inbox was full of people sharing what it is about Jesus and the church in Dauphin Way that has made a difference in their lives? We all have to have an answer to this question. If we want to have an answer for a world that is searching, we don't have to offer them what they are looking for. They just need to know that this is a place where they can search. They need to know that you are looking for something too. And if there's anybody watching today who hasn't been doing this a long time, who isn't sure about any of all of this, there's anybody here who's kicking the tires on yet another movement or anybody who considers themselves that skeptic, it is only fair if you ask me, why Jesus? Why the church? Why this congregation? Why Jesus? I I am a follower of Jesus because I have experienced his living presence. And I'm convinced that Jesus is able to unite a divided world, that just as it was when Jesus died and the curtain that was in the temple tore apart, Jesus is the only one who can help people on either side of all the barriers in this world see each other for who they are and come to know not only each other, but God's own presence. I'm convinced that the living presence of Jesus is the only hope for us on earth and also our only hope of uniting earth and heaven in a very divided world. I'm here because Jesus helped me to reconcile what is divided in my own heart. And I've seen his living presence make a difference in me. Why the church? Because Jesus can't reconcile the world and can't reconcile earth and heaven if every person goes about it alone. If we're all just doing our own thing. I cannot be saved from myself unless I belong to something bigger than myself. And I believe the church is the greatest cause that God has ever given. All the other kingdoms of this world, they rule by trying to sell me something and buy my allegiance, or else they try to rule by coercion and force. But in the church, we believe that the only power we have is not the power to buy and sell or the power to coerce or cause by violence. The only power we have is called grace. It is the power to give gifts and invitations, and I've been at the church long enough to know that grace is messy, and it is slower than I would like it to be, and I'm also absolutely convinced that it wins in the end, and that it is the greatest power in the world, and nothing will outlast it. So why the church? Out of all the organizations, out of all the causes, out of all the things I could be a part of, it is because I believe that we are a part of a bigger mission than ourselves, and that this is the greatest one worth being part of. And since I've been here about 19 months, I've been continually asking myself, why Dolphin Way? And if you've been around here a little while, you know that the first answer to that question is because a bishop named David Graves told me to go to Dolphin Way. My family and I, we made a commitment a really long time ago that we were a part of a mission bigger than ourselves. And that we would submit to God's wisdom by going wherever God seemed to have a place for us to go, and that we would never say no to an invitation to serve God where it seemed we should be. But the longer I've been here, and the more I've asked myself, well, well why did God send me here? You wide know, often way, the more reasons I have discovered? for God's presence and for what God is doing. One of the greatest is that Dolphin Way, this congregation is a church full of people who are looking for something. This is a congregation full of people who do not need to be motivated to go looking for something. Is a congregation full of people who believe there must be something more, who want something more for themselves, for their families, for their church, for their community, for the world. It is a church that is motivated and ready to go out and do those things to help make that more happen. They are ready to serve their community. They're ready to be neighbors. They're ready to unite all kinds of people. I love Dauphin Way because it is truly intergenerational. And there are fewer and fewer churches every day of which that can be said. As every church kind of has its new marketing strategy to be the church for this age group or that age group, Dauphin Way continues to believe against all the wisdom of all the marketers in the world that we can truly be a church for every generation and that we can even bring those generations to come to know one another better And I love Dauphin Way because in a world where it seems that every single choice, even down to the foods that we eat, now carries with it some sort of political connotation or polarization, this can be a church where people of radically different politics become radically good friends. And I love Dauphin Way. Because while other churches are built around star pastors or secretly star donors... Dolphin Way is a church that believes all its people can become leaders. It is a church that believes it can make each person into the sort of people who will be the kind of leaders who can weather any storm and come out on the other side even stronger than they were. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a world that is reconciled, for a kingdom that unites heaven and earth. And I am looking for a Lord who is more worthy and who is better than all the would-be powers of this world. And that's what I have seen here. And I wonder why you are here. Some of you are looking for something that's going to change the world. Some of you are looking for a truth that will never change. And I expect that each and every one of us is looking for something that is just a little bit different But even so, every single one of us can help someone find Jesus. And if we will be that kind of church, a church that lives as if anyone really can find Jesus and find their purpose in Jesus Christ, if we will live as if every person can have an answer when they are asked, why are you here? Then when the world looks at us and what God is doing through Dolphin Way, I am absolutely convinced they will say, I ain't never seen nothing like that.